Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode, I look at a small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. And in this episode, I will be continuing my look at the works of Charles W. Chestnut, in particular, his novel on racism and violence and the color line, The Marrow of Tradition. So, I urge you to go back and listen to my first episode on the Marrow of Tradition because this is a rather dense and and meaty novel. It's not that long, actually. It's it's actually not much longer than his previous novel, The House Behind the Cedars, but it's much more complex in plotting. It's it's there's a lot more going on. I want to say uh, we have issues here of the color line, the propaganda of race, the media lynching, the whole psychology of racism and slavery, uh, the fate of upwardly mobile the black middle class, social mobility among whites. So there's a lot of class issues on both sides of the color line explored in this novel. We have a look at the ideology of poor whites. We have narratives of resistance and many other topics. So there's there's really a lot going on here. Now the novel is set in the town of Wellington, which is a loose, loose fictionalization of the town. Loose fictionalization of Wilmington. So Wellington, Williamton. I, I might confuse them sometimes, but it doesn't matter. Uh, the historical race riot took place in 1898. It left around up to 300 black people dead. And it was really one of the final movements to bring down Reconstruction. Now, now we normally see Reconstructions ending in 1876. And yeah, most states had already been so-called redeemed, quote-unquote redeemed by the Democratic Party and by white supremacists by that point. But it was still an ongoing process to disenfranchise black people and take away their powers. And at the local level, there were a lot of towns and communities that still had a very vibrant black political class. That started to fade away by 1900, for sure, with disenfranchisement and the, the establishment of Jim Crow. Now, the, the Wilmington race riot is one of the last events in this uh, transition. All right, so, um, well, Chestnut wanted to write this novel in response to what he thought were overly sensationalized and dramatic and basically inaccurate depictions of the race riot that came out in the popular press. And he wanted a more serious examination of the root causes of the race riot and what it meant and to give them a less stereotypical and a much more complex view of both the white and the black South uh, in the, in this period of really the transition to institutionalized white supremacy by, by 1900. Now, of course, that timeline is different in different towns and different states, um, but it, it happened throughout the South by around 1900. So in the first episode of my review of the Merrill Tradition, I looked at the first half of the novel and a lot was going on, but I'll try to do my best to summarize the most important points. But I really do urge you to go back and listen to my comments on the first half, you know, or, you know, or, but yeah, if you're just joining, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best here. Um, the main plot really surrounds the interconnections between two families, the Carteret family and the Miller family, a white family and a black family. 
and they are connected and through the female line. Mrs. Carteret's father had a child with a black servant in the years after the Civil War, right in the Reconstruction years. So her half-sister Janet and the servant, Janet's mother Julia, were kicked out of the home by this woman Polly Ochiltree when her father died. And actually before that point, Polly had already taken uh, who, the, person who would, the woman who would be Mrs. Carteret uh, at her time, her name would have been Olivia Merkel, took her and raised her away from her father. And Janet eventually did fine on her own. She married into a middle-class black family and, and married a promising young black doctor, Mr. Miller, who runs a, a, a practice and a hospital in, in the town. Mrs. Carteret, meanwhile, has a child in the early pages of the novel. Now, their servant, Mammy Jane, thinks that the child is ill-fated and that bad luck does befall him. In fact, he does have some bad luck. He almost falls a piece of toy that requires surgery. And later he almost falls out a window. Now, both of these events have a very loose connection to the Millers, which increases this idea that something about the Miller or I, I guess Janet's family is bringing bad luck to the Carteret's new child. Dodie is his name. Now, Mr. Carteret, meanwhile, is trying to use the media which he owns. He owns a newspaper called the Morning Chronicle, and he wants to spark racial antagonism. Really, not, not really because he's a violent person, but he really feels it's necessary to end the Republican and populist joint government that was elected and took power, which he basically sees as, as a Negro government and therefore unacceptable to white supremacists like like him. So he, he wants to take that down, and he's trying to use the media to do this. And so he's using editorials and newspaper accounts, especially promoting stories about black crime. At the same time, you have an old man of conservative and pre-Civil War values about race, very, very much paternalist. Paternalist, he's, I think he's one of the oldest people in town. His name is Mr. Delamere, and he has a grandson named Tom Delamere, and, and they're of old wealth, but especially Mr. Delamere, whose heritage must go back really to, you know, the 1810s or so, really has these more old-fashioned views about race, where he sees, he really believes the paternalistic lie about slavery, that it was like the father and the children kind of relationship. And that does affect how he interacts with black people in the town, where he just thinks it's still his job to sort of care for them and watch over them and, and you know, treat them kindly, and then they in return give loyalty. His grandson, though, is just a typical young man born into wealth, a wastrel, gambler, a drunk, useless. He's handsome, but he's he's basically a deplorable person. But he is expected to marry the Carteret's niece, Clara. Now, meanwhile, Ellis, Mr. Carteret's editor at the newspaper, also wants to marry Clara and is in love with her. And he's a, presented as sort of the better guy. Deeply in debt to the violent white supremacist McBain, Tom Delamere fails to get out of debt um, by gambling and then turns towards murder. He paints himself in dark face and dresses up as the family's black servant, Sandy. He then murders Polly Ochiltree, stealing the money she has in her house, and then frames Sandy for the murder. Now, there's one other important character we meet in the first half of the novel, and that's John Green, a black sailor who hates McBain because McBain was involved in a Ku Klux Klan action that led to the death of Green's mother. He's just one of several young blacks in the novel with a chip on their shoulder and an unwillingness to accept the restraints of the color line. So in this sense, yeah, we have class distinctions made between people like Miller and Josh Green or Miller and Sandy, 
Uh, there's another guy, Jerry. So there's class lines between these types of characters. But there's also an age discrepancy where some of the younger characters you see have a lot of resentment and hatred and, and anger built up over their experiences as they're born as free people but face this discrimination. And Josh Green is the best example of that. So that, that kind of is where we're at at the beginning of the novel. It's very much psychologically driven. There's not that much about the race riot that happens. You know, in fact, there's, there's the talking about using the media to promote white supremacy, but uh, a race riot and violence is not really on, on the docket yet. But that changes with the realization that Polly Ochiltree has been murdered. So we left off on chapter 18, so we'll just go right with chapter 19. It's called A Midnight Walk. And so Ellis is, this scene actually parallels the last chapter. Maybe I should have talked about it last time. In the previous chapter, Sandy is walking home drunk after being with Josh Green and, and kind of drinking all night. And he sees himself walking ahead of him. Now this turns out to be uh, Tom Delamere in blackface dressed like Sandy trying to frame him for the murder he's about to commit. But to him, because he's drunk, he, he sees this kind of as his own haunt, as his own ghost. And... Ellis at the same time sees these two people that look alike and he thinks that's really strange. Now, unfortunately for Sandy, Ellis is kind of distracted at that point. He He's sort of on the one hand happy that he heard that Tom Delamere is going to be kicked out of the Claritin Club for debts. He doesn't like Tom at all. But at the same time, he's hopeful that this will help him in his pursuit of Clara. He thinks if that relationship can be broken up, he'll be kind of next in, in line for this for courting Clara. So he's a bit too much distracted by these thoughts to make much of the two men. Um, but this is going to become an important later on in the story. Um, then we get to chapter 20, a shocking crime. So we have here Dinah. This is a very... Um, where am I at? Okay, Dinah. This is Mrs. Ochiltree's servant, and she finds the mistress dead. Olivia Cartier is called to help, and she does arrive, and... You know, and she sees the dead body. But while there, Mrs. Carteret seeks out these documents that Polly Ochiltree referred to earlier in the story, where she said kind of the secret of, of, of the secret of your past is kind of stuck in these secret documents that I've hidden away. Now that Mrs. Polly Ochiltree is dead, she's going to take these documents away. Now, what's the specific question she wants to know about? Well, that is because Polly Ochiltree made the claim that she saved her family estate from Janet. Now, Julie and Janet, his father's servant and their illegitimate daughter. But why would this be if, you know, why they would have no claim if their relationship was illegitimate? Janet would have no claim to the estate at all. So it's what is being protected here. That That's really what's unclear. Now, that's, that's the importance of Mrs. Carteret going to Ochiltree's house is getting these papers. And then we kind of move into that kind of the public realization that this murder took place. And so with the crime of the previous night out in the open, it's the blacks who are dreamed the, in the immediate suspects. And Chestnut writes, Suspicion was at once directed towards the Negroes, as it always is when an unexplained crime is committed in the Southern community. The suspicion was not entirely an illogical one, having been for generations trained up to thriftlessness, theft, and immorality against which only 30 years of very limited opportunity can be offset, during which brief periods they had been deny in large measure the helpful social stimulus and sympathy which holds most men in the path of rectitude. Colored people might reasonably be expected to commit at least a share of crime proportionate to their numbers. End quote. Uh, one of many kind of asides where Chestnut gives 
his overall view of some of these uh, social consequences of, of slavery in the years after the Civil War. So what's to be done about that? And we learn about this murder and we learn the answer in the next chapter, chapter 21, the necessity of an example. Well, really, this is the beginning of, of seven chapters that detail the near lynching of Sandy for a crime. Now, it's interesting that Chestnut doesn't actually do the lynching because this is a novel about racial violence. So why not go through with the lynching? I, I've thought long about this and I, I just think it's, it's very fascinating. He spends about 20 percent of the novel building up this tension about Sandy, who didn't do anything wrong, is about to be lynched. You have people in the white community who say it doesn't matter if Sandy did it or not. We just should lynch someone just to put black people in their place. And you expect Sandy to be lynched. There's palpable to pull real terror that the reader feels about this about to ha that this is going to happen to a character that maybe is not a major character, but he's someone we sympathize with and and care about a little bit by this point in the story. But this is something that Chestnut really wants his readers to pay attention to. I don't know if it's because. I think partially it's to show that it, when combined with the race riot that comes later, that wisdom and judgment and and restraint by whites on one day doesn't mean they're not going to do violent and horrible things the next day. Another is to give this sense of kind of building up racial antagonism that explodes in the race riot. I think it also shows distinctions among the black within the black community and within the white community over how to deal with with lynching. And then I think he might be also making a point that, yeah, there were thousands of lynchings throughout the South, but how many near lynchings took place? We don't really have numbers or records on this and that this happens a lot, too. So the threat of lynching went above and beyond the actual lynchings that took place, right, that there was always this danger. And so all black people lived in fear of this, even if their town didn't have a lynching. They probably had events like this where lynchings nearly happened or were threatened or talked about openly. So he might have been doing a couple things in, in this chapter. Now, the major political conspirators of the story, it's always this triad of people. It's Major Carteret, Captain McBain, and General Belmont. And they always meet in the Morning Chronicle to talk about what they're going to put on the press and what they're going to do. Now, notice again that these are Confederate titles. They're, they're borrowing these titles from their Confederate service or whatever. So it's, it's a bit of play acting, a lot of these uh, positions don't really exist in reality. They're just almost make-believe, much like the the Southerners playing at chivalry in the house behind the cedars. Now, they all agree that this murder should be handled through a lynching. A lynching is necessary at this point. The murder proves that black people cannot be controlled without a show of force. Now, Carteret wants to get the right man, and it's been suggested that Sandy's the murder. In fact, it was Jerry, the black servant of the newspaper office, who identify Sandy as the one who committed the crime and Sandy's arrested but still Carteret wants to make sure he gets the right man McBain though thinks that any black person lynched will make the point it doesn't matter right and he actually says at one point lynching an innocent man might be better now yeah Chestnut really wants us to hate McBain but you know we can't forget that Carteret and Belmont are also talking about straight up murder here they just want to murder the, the, the guilty man now, because Jerry does identify Sandy, Belmont praises him and lets him keep the change after ordering a few of these drinks they like. They're called Calhoun cocktails. They're actually drinks made by John C. Calhoun or invented by John C. Calhoun back before the Civil War. And they talk about the need for a special edition 
talk which is going to promote the need for for a lynching so quote carteret immediately put into press an extra edition of the morning chronicle which she was soon upon the streets giving details of the crime which was characterized as an atrocious assault upon a defenseless old lady whose age and sex would have protected her from harm by the hands of anyone but a brute of the lowest human form Unquote. Now, remember, this is a big strategy of the Morning Chronicle to build up resentment towards this government in in the town is to use crime as the as the propaganda tool. All right. Chapter 22 has a weird title, How Not to Prevent a Lynching. And this one is really about the black community's response to the threat of the lynching of Sandy. John Green comes in to see Dr. Miller, basically telling him that Sandy couldn't have done this. He was getting drunk with, with me last night. He couldn't have committed the crime. And we find the approach of the black middle class to the lynching, represented by Miller and another man, Dr. Watson, who's the, like the African-American lawyer in town. They're trying to, sp it's basically to try to talk to white people and try to convince them and to use reason and, you know, logic on their side. Now, Chestnut calls this chapter how not to prevent a lynching. So it's clear he thinks that whites can't be really rallied in support of a black victim of lynching. That, that seems to be his point. However, this is contradicted by the actual events later in the novel. Sandy's lynching is indeed prevented by the intervention of Mr. Delamere. So I'm not quite sure what Chestnut's trying to say. In fact, it was sympathetic, a sympathetic white man who knew the truth, who actually stood up and put his reputation on the line to save the life of, of, of this lyn potential lynching victim. So in a sense, Miller and Watson were right. I guess they talked to the wrong people. The idea of going to maybe the Carterets or something is misguided, but they eventually do go to Mr. Delamere. He's the one they go seek out. So I, I'm still a bit confused about why he calls this chapter how not to prevent a lynching. Um, but maybe he's just trying to build up tension to think that this lynching is going to go through, you know, for the reader's sake. Now, in chapter 23, it's called Bellevue, and mostly this chapter is about Miller going off to see Mr. Delamere. And it's a rather creepy trip because they really go into the heart of white supremacy, the old plantation world. Delamere's house has been here for like 200 years. So this is a really, really old, like pre-revolutionary house. Quote, the old colonial plantation, rich in legendary lore and replete with historical distinction, had been the Delamere family for nearly 200 years. Along the bank of the river which skirted its domain, the famous pirate Blackbeard had held high carnival, carnival, which was reputed to have buried much treasure, vague traditions of which still lingered among, among the Negroes and poor whites of the country roundabout. The beautiful residence, rising white and stately in the grove of ancient oaks dated from 1715, was built of brick which had been brought from England. Enlarged and improved from generation to generation, stood like a baronial, baronial castle upon the slight eminence of which could still be surveyed the large demensee, which still belonging to the estate, which had shrunk greatly from its colonial dimensions. On and on. So really, we have an old, established, feudal mansion, essentially, here. Delamere hears that Sandy's been accused of this murder, and he's simply in disbelief. He cannot believe. And he has no evidence that Sandy didn't do it. It's simply he can't believe. He thinks he knows Sandy so well. He thinks he knows. He just says, I can vouch for Sandy's morality and his, his, his ethics and who he is. So he couldn't have done that. 
And then they both drive together back to town, to the jail where Sandy's being kept. And Delamere's ready to intervene on his servant's behalf. Next is uh, chapter 24, Two Southern Gentlemen. Another chapter with a very interesting title. In this case, the two Southern Gentlemen are Mr. Delamere and, and Sandy. And I think Chestnut's point here is that both of these people are products of the South. They're both products of the slave South. They have this kind of mutual loyalty. They have this really kind of queer relationship based on paternalism. Um, but Chestnut, I think, by calling this two Southern gentlemen, really shows these as two archetypal figures of the South. Now, Delamere eventually gets the entire story from Sandy, including that he was out drinking with Josh Green and all that. And the, the biggest question that Delamere has is how does Sandy get the gold coins? that identify him as the murderer. The truth is, of course, they got them from Tom Delamere. This is all part of the frame job. Tom actually borrowed $50 from Sandy and lost at gambling. But after killing Polly Ochiltree, he got this gold coins and he gave those, some of those gold coins to, to Sandy to pay back this debt. But that had the two-pronged effect. It paid off the debt and also gave him evidence that he was there at the murder. So it's... That's the story. Um, now, Delamere, though, still doesn't believe that Sandy couldn't have been involved in this. And so he goes off to find what he can. But he does warn the sheriff not to let Sandy be lynched. And then chapter 25, the honor of a family. So Del this is a fascinating chapter, too, where it's really about Delamere and Carteret sparring with each other over whether this lynching should go forth or not. So Delamere goes to the Morning Chronicle to basically vouch for Sandy and try to get the newspaper to call off the lynching. Carteret has his doubts, but he listens. Delamere is, of course, a respected member of the, of the community. But he basically says that at this point, the only way to stop this is if there's a white man who testifies with being with Sandy. You can't trust, I mean, you can't take a black testimony on this because the assumption is that they would just look out for themselves and look out for their own community. So it has to be a white man who testifies being with Sandy. It's not good enough that John Green, Josh Green, could testify. Delamere is told, so Carteret tells Delamere that you think you know Sandy so well, I, and I believe that you think that, but the fact is you can't know someone deep down, and especially not a black person. And he says, I can prove this to you. And Delamere says, well, how? And Carteret says, well, I have this news about your grandson. And he starts to say all the rumors that have been out about his grandson, how he got kicked out of the Claritin Club, how he's deeply in debt, how he can't pay them off, and he's a gambler and a cheat. Delamere realizes at this point, this is all news to him, actually, and but he realizes that maybe his son is worthless and he covered that up really well. But Sandy is still, you know, truthful, you know, loyal to me. So in a way, Delamere is still has this kind of racist assumption here, and that is that Sandy is not capable of being duplicitous and not capable of murder, not ca capable of like putting on an act and putting on a show. And Carteret, at the end of this chapter, begins to pity Delamere and what he sees as his stupidity and basically his old-fashioned views about race. And again, Delamere is coming from, you know, before the Civil War. That's really where he, his ideas about race emerged. And there's these younger characters, though, they're getting their racial ideology much more in the context of, of Reconstruction and the, the post-Civil War South. Okay, next we have uh, 26, the discomfort of Ellis. So 
as we saw before the previous night, Ellis saw this strange occurrence with these two men dressed the same. But he was kind of distracted by his own relationship troubles. But now that he's learned that Sandy's been put in jail and that he's set up to be lynched, and he starts to doubt the truth of these accusations, he, he starts to connect this to the two men he saw the previous night, and he thinks that... He jumps to the conclusion that Tom Delamere is the murderer. And his evidence for this is he thinks... He goes thinks back to the cakewalk where he saw Sandy dance there, and he says that his movements are not what he saw. And what he actually was seeing at night was a white man pretending to be a black person and that this is it's a certain caricature or a certain stereotype of how black people walked and and moved around and that was being parodied by someone and so this leads him to believe that what couldn't have been sandy in fact it was tom delamere now this is a bit self-serving i don't know how he was able to identify tom delamere except just by circumstantial evidence he is worried about doing this, though, because if he decides to intervene, he's worried that this will ruin his relationship with Clara and with the Carterets more generally, because it's also his job is connected to them. We do get a little bit about Ellis's background in this chapter, particularly the fact that he's come from a Quaker family, a Southern Quaker family that really doesn't have the deep racist traditions. He's actually from a Whig family, a non-slaveholding family, and... And like many other people of non-slaveholding Southerners, he did support the South in the Civil War. But he has a tradition, and his family has a tradition of sort of anti-slavery thought. And this helps lead him to the decision that he should do something to try to you know, prevent the lynching of, of Sandy. And all these events reach their climax in Chapter 27, the vagaries of the higher law. So this is a very detailed climax to this subplot. Delamere investigates his grandson's room, and he finds plenty of evidence that he was, in fact, murdered by Polly Ochiltree. There's the gambling, there's the cards, there's, I think they find some of the gold that were there. So he asks around to basically prop up his evidence, and he finds some more clues, like based on when he came in the previous night and all that. So Delamere takes all this to Carteret, and Carteret listens to it and says, yeah, we probably shouldn't lynch this guy. We should stop it if we can. And as was established before, Carteret cares about getting the right person. And so they said the lynching should be stopped, but how to do this without revealing that Tom Delamere did it and ruining the Delamere's reputation? Mr. Delamere says, no, I disown my grandson. You can throw him in jail. I don't care. But Carteret is a little bit more practical, and he says, no, we got to protect your family's reputation and we cannot really accuse Tom of it and plus the public's been worked up for lynching so to go back down now would be tantamount to surrendering the moral high ground to the black community in town so Carteret decides to have Delamere swear before the court that Sandy was with him all the previous night this will stop the lynching but it will leave the crime essentially unsolved Carteret then uses the press to call off the lynching Delamere rewrites his will after this event. He gives much of his money to Sandy and he gives the rest to Dr. Miller and to his hospital. Um, but he dies pretty much within an hour or so of writing his will. Tom is completely disowned in this will as well. General Belmont hides the will. He thinks he might be able to use it against Tom Delamere or use it in some to his advantage in the future. So, you know, the will is not carried out. Now, this is not the... This is not the last important will in the story. There's actually another one that we 
get introduced to pretty much right after the events here. So Chestnut sort of made these parallel wills, both of which involve money going to the millers and both of which were not carried out or destroyed or undermined. So the chapter is called The Vagrancies of Higher Law. And I think Chestnut's point here is that the law is not going to save black people. In this case, it was just luck that kept Sandy from being lynched, not the law, certainly. And the law prevented an honest, a relatively honest man, Delamere, of trying to, you know, give something to a servant who he thinks has been wrongly accused and wrongly treated. So then, chapter uh, 28, in season and out. So we get a sort of a calm before the storm here between the near lynching and the race riot that will be the climax of the novel. Carteret takes on Sandy as his servant because Tom doesn't. Tom, I think, leaves him literally like one suit of clothes, despite him be having an instantial inheritance from his Tom's father or grandfather. But we get a broader picture of what's going on in the state, and that is the state moves to take voting rights away from blacks. This chapter has a brief summary of how this often worked and how southern states in the Jim Crow years got around the 15th Amendment, which, of course, states could not create voting laws that would discriminate based on race. That, that was against the Constitution, but still, how, how then were blacks disenfranchised? There was a lot of ways of doing this. In fact, Chestnut wrote a, whole, wrote a whole essay, which I'll talk about in a couple episodes from now, on this very issue. But here we get a brief description, and, you know, there was different tactics. But in, one point to remember with this is that these laws that discriminated against blacks voting, were designed to keep blacks from voting, had to be, in, like, in the terms of letter of the law, at least, colorblind. Now, they weren't colorblind, obviously, but often poor whites often got disenfranchised as well. You know, things like literacy tests or... Um, things like, you know, poll taxes. These are ways that to keep that kept blacks from voting, but they also kept many poor whites from voting. But that was actually useful for the redemption project as well, because many poor whites voted Republican or supported the populists or something. And in fact, I think it was C. Van Woodward's book on the origins of the New South actually talks about how it was for the populists that helped create and establish disfranchisement laws as much as it was fear of of the loss of white supremacy. It was a bit of both. But it just, just not describes it. It was clearly about white supremacy. We also get a little side mention of the popularity of cosmetic prop, prop products that promise lighter skin color. This In this way, sort of Chestnut is foreshadowing a theme that comes up a lot in the, re, the Harlem Renaissance novels I talked about last year in this podcast you know, the the hair straighteners and the face creams and things. And there's a novel called Black or the Berry about a really dark-skinned woman who whose family really encourages her to have lighter skin and makes her gives her all these products. Now, Jerry starts to use this stuff, but it has ill effect. It causes, like, skin blotches and things, and it kind of doesn't look good at all. And find, this causes derision among the whites at the Morning Chronicle who make fun of him for for using these products. Chapter 29, Mutterings of a Storm. So Carteret begins to move to, against uh, the government and against the blacks in the town and using his major power, his major tool, which is the newspaper. And he pulls out an old editorial that a black newspaper published like in a previous year. And this was an editorial about lynching. And what the editorial did, again, it was in a black newspaper in the town. It suggested that most of the men who were lynched were 
not not only not guilty, but often were consensual lovers of white women who later claimed rape. Carter, you know, this therefore not was not only undermined the whole tradition of lynching, but it also undermined like an, an image of white female virtue. So Carteret publishes this article with his response and commentary with hopes that this will encourage the whites to move against the blacks of the town, especially the most upwardly mobile blacks. And then we get a very, very chilling description in which the whites at the Morning Chronicle, these kind of leaders of this movement, talk about individual black members of the black middle class, identify who will be spared, who will be driven out, or who will be killed if they can. McBain wants all blacks of any wealth and position to be, be killed and He's, he's the most overtly racist and violent in the group. Others, like Mr. Car- like there's a talk about M- Dr. Miller. Like on the one hand, yeah, he's kind of upwardly mobile and he could be dangerous. But on the other hand, he's we need him, right? We, he's part of this community, part of the economy. We can't get rid of him. So, but it's very chilling. It, it's got this, um, uh, you know, the, the way they kind of systematically go through who's going to be saved and who's not and, it's just it's just really creepy in it. Then chapter thirty, the missing papers. So I don't know why it takes her so long, but Olivia Cartier finally gets at the papers that she retrieved from Polly Ochiltree, and the great mystery that's revealed that was hidden is that her father married Julia, his black servant. Why? Well, he wanted to avoid being forced into a marriage with Polly Ochiltree after Olivia's mother died. So Julia is his second wife, and she. She, he did it. He was having sex with her, but he married her because he didn't want to be forced into a new marriage with a woman he did not want to be with. When she sees the marriage certificate and the evidence, which includes a will, she burns it. The will of her father she also destroys, and this left Julia and her children $10,000 and some land. Also in the papers is a letter from her father, and this explains to the reader, and I think it was directed to Mr. Delamere, Actually, it explains why he married Julia, and it says that if it will help her in the future, he is willing that this truth comes out to the public. He also, so it's basically insurance if she ever needs it. If she ever needs this legitimization, it's here. She asked, now, Olivia goes to ask her husband, Mr. Carteret, in a roundabout way, if a white man could have legally married a black woman at any point. It's, it's illegal at this point, but it wasn't in the Reconstruction or after the Civil War, at least according to Carteret. So he says that this could have happened back then. Then chapter 31, a shadow of a dream. So Olivia has a strange dream. And after the dream, she decides to compromise with herself. Because she does feel a bit guilty about disenfranchising Julia entirely and not honoring her father's wishes. But at the same time, she doesn't want to acknowledge any formal legal relationship between her father and, and, and Janet. I guess not Julia, Janet. So she decides she'll hand over some money to Janet, but continue to deny that the marriage took place. So Janet will be illegitimate, but she'll have a more secure future. She'll have the money. The problem is that the money is not liquid. So Janet will need to wait till the future. She will give this to the hospital. Her husband is running. So she'll give it to her as a donation to the hospital. Now, after this, she makes this decision. Carteret tells her, stay away from downtown this afternoon. Worried about what may happen, she also warns Jane, her, you know, the, the maid, the servant in the house, the black servant, to stay out on the streets. So the it's going down. The race riot's going down. It's been planned. It's been arranged. 
white people, white militias have been given guns. It's been planned to disarm, drive out, and kill the black men of town, particularly those who resisted or were upwardly mobile or wanted to vote or were politically active. And then we get to 32 and the riot. Um, the last, final chapters of, of this novel all are set around the riot itself. I don't think we need too much on the details of it, but Ch Chestnut's rather matter of fact about the riot, especially in chapter 32. It happens just as it was planned in the Morning Chronicle. Now, we do get some resistance to this when it starts to go down. And the major resistance comes from Josh Green, who, with another group of, of people, um, particularly sailors and working class, younger black people, arm themselves and refuse to be run out of town. Chapter 33 is called Into the Lion's Jaws, and chapter 34 is in the Valley of the Shadow. These kind of come together. Basically, they're, um, they're about Miller rushing through town trying to find his wife and son to see if they're safe. He goes to their house and he learns that they're in another place, and he tries to get there. And along the way, he sees dead bodies. He's often stopped and searched for weapons. These patrols make it harder and harder for him to get to his destination. And he starts to worry that Josh's resistance is only going to make things worse. worse. Uh, the next chapter, chapter 35, Mine Enemy, Oh My Enemy. This is, this is the climax of, of the riot. Uh, what starts to change is the crowd gets less, out of, less controlled. It's the original plans start to break up. People are being killed more randomly and start women and children start to be killed and shot. And Carteret and Ellis decide it's really got to slow down. Ellis, though, is pessimistic. She, he thinks that basically white hatred of blacks really can't be reasoned with. The riot will just have to burn out on its own. Carteret, though, does want to stop it if it's, it's, it's possible. Now, the climax of the, of the riot comes when they try to burn down Miller's hospital. Josh Green and his fighters, the resistors, are holed up in the hospital and it's lit on fire. Rather than burn down, Josh Green charges out with his friends. They fight back. And in this melee, many of Josh Green's fighters die but josh green also kills mcbain getting the revenge that he's longed hoped for so this is the cathartic moment in the novel when when i guess the good guy wins for a moment and again a character that's not a big part of the story but he's one of the more interesting and sympathetic characters i think and the one that i think if there's like a branch off novel uh, of this a sequel spin-off series or spin-off novel josh green's adventures you know on the on the ships or on the docks would, would be the story that'd be fun to watch or read. Chapter 36, Fiat Justice. Okay, now here's where the story gets a little bit melodramatic and but yeah, it's just the way it is. I, I think in a way the house behind the seniors ended in a bit of a contrived way too. Th this ending certainly is contri contrived, but it's, it is what it is. Carteret returns home as the riot dies down. And he finds that his son is dying of some emergency disease. It's not really involved with the riot. It's, it's just he happened to be sick that day. Unfortunately, the doctors are all busy with the injured from the riot. And Carteret can't really find anyone to help. He, he eventually finds a doctor named Evans who really is not very experienced. He can't cure the son. So Evans suggests that Miller knows how to do this. He's the only doctor in town with the knowledge. Evan tries to get Miller, but then Miller says, no, I need Carteret to ask me personally. 
And, and this goes back to an earlier scene in the first part of the novel where Miller is turned away from the Carteret's door when he comes to try to operate on Doty. So it's, it's those kind of chickens coming home to roost. So Carteret has to go there. He does this. Miller confronts Carteret with the body of his dead son. And this is partly why Miller wanted Carteret to come himself, because he wanted to show him the body of his son. He was shot during the riot by a stray bullet. And Miller accuses Carteret of being the murderer because it was Carteret, of course, who kind of stoked up uh, racial tensions in the town. Now, Carteret, in a way, doesn't really blame Miller, all things considered. He actually has a bit of respect for him and he understands that why he might not want to treat his own son. But when and, and Miller just kind of or no, Carteret gives up and he goes back home. And then Mrs. Carteret, though, when she hears that Miller's not coming, she blanches and runs out screaming and this gives us to the final chapter of the novel chapter 37 the sisters this is where olivia and janet finally meet after this whole novel miller is talking to mrs carteret and says okay i'll treat Dodie if you and my wife can reconcile or if you get permission from her directly from janet directly Olivia goes then to Janet's room, tries to convince her to help her. And she has various arguments. One is like, I can't have any more kids. You can have more kids. Um, another is just kind of general humanitarianism and morality. And none of this really gets beyond Janet's feelings of remorse over her kid and anger and frustration. Because this isn't just any woman. This isn't just any white woman. This is someone who's actively denied Janet's legitimacy and Janet's place in society and even denied their relationship. Eventually, she then agrees to recognize Janet as her sister and give her the inheritance. Now, Janet refuses this. She says, I don't want your money. I don't want this. I just wanted your acknowledgement that you're my sister. And then we get this monologue by Janet, which rejects, it's rejecting this kind of, at this point, imagined sisterhood. Listen, I have but one word for you, my one last word, and then I hope to never see your face again. My mother died of want, and I was brought up by the hands of charity. Now when I have married a man who can supply my needs, you offer me money back the money which you and your friends have robbed me of? You imagine that the shame of being a Negro swallowed up every other ignominity? And in your eyes, I'm a Negro, though I am your sister and you are white, and people have taken me for you on the streets. And you therefore left me nameless all my life. Now when an honest man is given me a name of which I can be proud and you offer me one of which you've robbed me and of which I can make no use. For 25 years, I, poor, despicable fool, would have kissed your feet for a word, a nod, a smile. Now with this tardy recognition comes for which I have waited so long and is tainted with fraud and crime and blood and I must pay for it with my child's life. So she throws back the name, but she does tell her husband to treat the boy. And that is how the marrow of tradition ends. So not much more to say, except to maybe point out a few special themes. Um, a lot of these themes carry over from the first half. Certainly the color line, that's always a theme in Chestnut's writing, especially with this relationship between the Carterets and the Millers. But while the first half of the novel is much more psychological, much more about the ideology of race and the inheritance of slavery and kind of how Reconstruction affected how people saw the color line and race relations and all that, it was much more political and psychological. This second half is all about violence. Either it's it's near violence, as in the lynching of Sandy, or actual violence, as in the 
the, the riot that climaxed the, the story. Now, notice Chestnut doesn't want to give us the story of what happens after because it's obvious what happens. It's the victory of white supremacy. The black community will be repressed. Their voting rights will be taken away. They will lose political power and they'll, you know, lynchings will continue. And that's going to be the way of things. And from Chestnut's point of view, that was going to be the way of things for a while. Now, he talks in his some of his essays about how he thinks there's a way out, but he doesn't really think it come from the, come from the South. He, he has more hope kind of in the North and in Northern traditions and institutions kind of fixing things, but he doesn't think the South can kind of get out of these cycles. Um, so anyways, what do we have to add here? I, I think lynching and racial violence is certainly a, a big theme here. Just how the, how white supremacy worked on many different levels, right? It, it worked on the level of the media. It worked on the level of ideology and and racism and the economy and, and poverty, right? Characters like Jerry who are willing to do anything for a, a tip are a sign of just how the economic economy could be used as a weapon against poor black people. The ages are, are paired against each other. Classes are paired against each other. But then if this all fails, there's always the lynching. There's always the, the race riot if, if push comes to shove. And um, I think that's, that's partially Chestnut's point here. We also have a lot here on paternalism, especially because we get a closer window into the relationship between Delamere and Sandy. Again, they're very much the old, old way. It, it's, it's presented as the, the way things were before. And the younger whites and the younger black people have no patience for paternalism anymore. The younger black people find paternalism disgusting and offensive, especially people like Josh Green. And even younger whites are not very sympathetic to paternalism, seeing Delamere as kind of an old joke. Um, but paternalism is still there in how some whites and some blacks interact, and especially those who remember slavery and had their formative years before slavery ended. But I think one more thing to say is that there is a narrative of resistance here. We don't get that much of it. And unfortunately, it's a resistance aimed ultimately for revenge. And that's how it reaches its climax. But there are characters, especially younger black people who are not willing to bow down and be um, just quiet victims of white supremacy. They are willing to stand up. And I, I think that's what makes Josh Green such a fascinating and important character in, in this novel. So um, that's, that's my thoughts on the Mirror of Tradition. I'm, I'm nearing the end here of my series on Charles Chestnut. I'll have probably two more episodes. There's a few more stories that the Library of America collected, um, actually three, three or four new, more Uncle Julia stories, and then a few others. I'll have a short episode where I'll just kind of talk about those. I, I don't know if I'll go through it story by story. And then another shorter episode on his, some of his essays. So I, I, I'm nearing the end of what I want to say about Charles Chestnut, but there's a few more kind of loose ends to wrap up. So that does it for now. Thank you so much for listening. If you have your own comments about your experience with this novel or um, what your views are of the post-Reconstruction South, um, about racial violence, uh, are there lessons for Chestnut's novels for us today? Or is it dated? Like many Harlem Renaissance writers thought that Chestnut was a bit of a dated writer. But are there still things we can learn from his writing uh, just leave your comments below or leave a review or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com and I'll be back with um, some more of Charles Chestnut's short stories <laughs>